You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference. And as usual, I'm happy to be joined today on the virtual interview couch by Dr. Hugh Thompson, RSA Conference Program Committee Chair. Wow, Dr. Hugh Thompson today. So formal, Britta. It's a good day. It is, it is. Hey, we're really looking forward to this podcast, as always. And today we're talking privacy. And we're going to look specifically at the impact of smart cities and IoT on how we approach our personal privacy and how organizations are reacting. We have two amazing guests with us today to share their perspectives and experiences. Tan and Gary, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Great. Hey, and Ted, let me start with you. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. I'm Ted Claypool. Um, I am, as we said, sitting in Atlanta, Georgia right now. I'm a partner with a law firm, a transatlantic law firm of Womble Bond Dickinson. Um, I also, up until a couple months ago, chaired the Cyberspace uh, Committee of the American Bar Association. And I've uh, co-written a couple of books with Teresa Payton on uh, privacy in the age of big data. Fantastic. Great. Glad to have you. And Gary, can you please do the same and introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Gary Hayslip. I'm the uh, Vice President of Cybersecurity and Risk at WebRoot, and I'm the Global CISO for WebRoot. Uh, prior to that, I was the uh, Deputy Director of IT and CISO for the City of San Diego, one of the world's smart cities. And then before that, I was a CISO for uh, the U.S. Navy for s- several years. Um, I've got a lot of just a lot of experience being a CISO, a CIO a uh, chief privacy officer, um, done extensive work, you know, dealing with networks and working with smart city and IoT uh, projects. And I'm, sitting in sunny, and I'm sitting in sunny California, in San Diego. Oh, man, you had to rub that in. <laughs> Our listeners, hopefully you're listening to this at a time when you are warm. <laughs> well, the sun always shines here in Southern California. Um, so, Gary, we're going to start there with you because many of those smart devices that are being put out there are, in fact, leveraging the fact the sun is shining and other um, other solar opportunities here. So, as you mentioned in your introduction, you were formerly the CISO for the city of San Diego, um, which has been super proactive and um, pretty transparent with much of the work that's being done. Um, from your perspective, then, does smart equal the end of privacy? as we currently know it, given all of this data that's being generated by the cities and how intelligent infrastructures are taking and aggregating it? Um, you know, honestly, I would say, I mean, just from my experience, you know, I, mean, I spent four years as a CISO for, you know, the eighth largest city in the United States. And that is one of the issues that you do have to take into account when you're using smart infrastructure, not just cities. I mean, you know, companies, uh, there's a lot of organizations that are using um, intelligent infrastructure and sensor networks. But what's, you know, what from a security perspective, you know, as a, as a security executive, as a risk, you know, executive, 
when you start using these newer technologies, um, the data that it creates and what you can do with that data, no one really thinks about that until it starts happening. You know, you're thinking about, you know, hey, we're going to have these new services, or hey, we're going to be able to do these new things with this technology. But and in, and in the process, as that data starts collecting, and sometimes very, very quickly, then you realize, wow, look at all this really interesting information. And then you start wondering, okay, hey, what do we do with this information? And then, you know, and for like the city of San Diego, they actually hired a chief data officer, and we actually started breaking down all these different data sets and figuring out what was publicly releasable and then what needed to be protected because it was considered to be private, you know, personal information or or financially related information. But it's one of those. It is a it is a big issue because you know a lot of these type of censored networks that I'm worried about it from a security perspective. But once I started seeing the types of data and the kind of things that you could collect and how you could take different data sets and aggregate them together and then kind of tell some pretty compelling, you know, information about citizens or about, you know, customers and consumers. And then you start realizing, wow, you know, yeah, this really falls into the privacy realm very quickly. Well, and this is Ted, that one of the things that Gary's talking about is all the data that you get. And the issue, one of the issues that people don't think about is if you are collecting all that data, that means somebody else can ask for it. Um, you know, and, and that somebody else may be the FBI, you know, maybe law enforcement, your own law enforcement or, or others as he was working for the city. But, you know, it may be somebody's divorce lawyer. Um, you know, who's uh, trying to check in on somebody and see where the, uh, you know, the alleged uh, stray husband or wife had uh, disappeared to on this afternoon, knowing that you are tracking their car and knowing that you have cameras at all the intersections. Wow, that's that's an amazing perspective because I, I think, you know, we often – Think about our data being disclosed to others, whether it's just walking into 7-Eleven and being being on the camera as a exposition to that company or maybe that country in the case of some of these really connected um, cities and countries. But rarely, I think, at least do I think about those use cases that you're talking about, that if somebody yeah. were to get a lawful warrant, it's a uh, it's a really fascinating emergent property. Yeah, Hugh, you you bring up something very specific there that I can answer, which is, um, I mean, Seven Eleven cameras. Uh, one of my um, law partners in Charlotte was the primary lawyer, um, and you can see him on ESPN's Thirty for Thirty, Thirty wow. by Thirty, I think it is, um, for the uh, for the Duke lacrosse players, and. One of the reasons that that the uh, that the um, prosecutor in that case not only lost his job but was disbarred, was thrown out of being a lawyer um, in the state of North Carolina was was that the defendants had a whole bunch of information like um, like, like cameras from Seven Eleven that proved that they were not at the location where the crime allegedly took place. And they could show that one guy was out buying cigarettes at a 7-Eleven. Another guy was out getting money at an ATM three miles away. You know, and all of this information was gathered by them and collected, 
not by them, but then collected secondhand by those guys and used to um, uh, to show that they weren't around while the crime was being committed. Tim, let me ask you just a, a quick follow-up on that. I mean, that that is fascinating. And I, I, I've always, at least to myself, had this litmus test that, that I've run into in legal articles and in talking to lawyers around reasonable expectation of privacy. And I, I, I wonder in this world where smart cities are collecting a lot of data, 7-Eleven cameras are, are, are looking at where I am, my car knows where I am, maybe the car manufacturer knows where I am, how do I recalibrate myself to what is a reasonable expectation of privacy? No, that's a great question, and uh, you may know, I mean, as as the RSA program guy, that a year or two ago I gave a talk on the gasping death of the reasonable expectation of privacy standard. Um, and that's that's for exactly these reasons. If you know cameras are everywhere and you know that you're, your watch, your smartwatch, and your smartphone, and everything else are are not only registering where you are all the time, but possibly what you're doing. Um, and they can record you, and they can take video, and you've got a an echo in your office or your home that uh, is potentially recording all the time. It means that you probably do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy. If you're expecting privacy, that's just not reasonable. And the problem with that is that the reasonable expectation of privacy test we use for the Fourth Amendment right now, in, and uh, so we're either going to have to come up with a new test or we're going to have to determine, you know, the fact that we just simply don't have any privacy for the for Fourth Amendment purposes. You know, Ted, uh, your last statement there, I mean, I look at a, you look at it now where as, as Hugh was just saying, you know, your your cars, you know, give an amazing amount of information about what you're doing. Your phones are a sensor platform unto themselves and the data that they collect on you. I mean, you know, your house now with your TV and your fridge and all these other things that are now having sensors and, and data and collected to the Internet. You know, I mean, I honestly believe that the privacy that you and I probably, you know, that many of us knew when we were growing up as kids, and what we have now doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, to me, we're getting to the point that where privacy is actually a commodity. It's what you're willing to pay for. You know. Yeah, and, I think that's exactly right. Well, keep in mind that, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, you know, all you had to do to be private is walk out into the night. Nobody could see you. Um, <laughs> you know, there were there were entire armies that got lost. You know that nobody found anymore. I mean, and, and that's just part of part of the issue. That starting with the uh, electric lights, um, we uh, you know almost all of our inventions moving from then on up have done something to take away privacy. And that you're exactly right, Gary. That you know ultimately you may have to pay for your privacy. I mean, I I, I do believe, as you stated, you know that the definition of what we have for the Fourth Amendment, I think it's going to change. I mean, I really do think it's going to have to be adjusted just because of the way society has accepted giving up privacy for that new app or giving right. up Right. Well, that definition wasn't in the Constitution. I mean, that definition was essentially um, pulled off of a uh, 
pulled off of an article that uh, Brandeis and others wrote in about 1880, um, in which they were very upset that the newspapers were covering their the, their wives at society parties, and they said, "Does this mean we have no privacy?" And so they brought this reasonable expectation standard in. And, and it was adopted. So, I mean, the fact that it was adopted, you know, 130 years ago means that it can be unadopted very quickly by the Supreme Court if they determine that it no longer applies. Yeah, we've we've unadopted it at my household. Last night when my teenage daughter was late getting home, I, I turn on Find a Friend. I can see exactly where she is because at our household, you know, I pay the bill on her phone. So, therefore, I have the opportunity to track her anywhere and everywhere that she is. And and as a parent, I consider that incredibly helpful technology. Yeah, well, I have to tell you, I didn't. I wouldn't go that far. I didn't have that kind of tracking on my kids. But the only time I remember that one of my kids gave me a problem and lied about where she was, I had two pictures of it from some of my friends that saw her that night and had sent photographs on their phones. So, you know, it may not even be your own kid's technology. It may be other people's technology that catches you out. I've I, I got to ask this to both of you, just based on, on what you just said, especially on the litmus test of privacy. You, know, you think about IoT, and and we just finished, uh, finished the holiday season here. Britta's got a couple of kids. I've got four and a fifth one on the way. And you get so much stuff that you bring into the house, toys, all kinds of crazy things. I got a, a an automated vacuum cleaner myself uh, a year and a half ago. And you really don't have a view on the kinds of sensory capabilities that these things have. Like I, I just even look around my office right now, and I can see at least seven things that I know can record sound and can connect to the internet. How do you, how do you as a person or even as somebody that say an executive at a company or somebody that's a government official just manage even identifying the sensors that are around you? Well, I'd be interested in hearing what Gary says about that. He's the technical <laughs> guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, honestly, the uh, there's times where I, you know, I guess you could say you get so paranoid to the point to where, you know, you want to you want to go back to the the day where you know you have nothing you know electronic in the room with you. You know, I mean, I spend a lot of my time. Um, working with startups and working with uh, working in the in the security industry with an extensive amount of other CISOs and we collaborate. You know, I've I've written books and articles and we talk a lot about running our teams and doing cybersecurity and uh, and IoT is one of those things that more and more we run into because businesses are leveraging technologies that go ahead, any kind of technology that they think, you know, from a business perspective is going to help their operations. And, you know, as a CISO, you know, you've got these teams that want to try, you know, something new. And right away you're sitting there, you're thinking, okay, what am I bringing in? You know, I think I've already got an established risk baseline. I think I've already got, 
you know, an idea from a portfolio perspective how much risk exposure we're dealing with, and I understand what I've got on the network, but now they want to bring in something new. Now they want to, you know, be innovative and try some new stuff. And what I found from an enterprise perspective, from a business perspective, if you're doing your hygiene, if you're doing your updates and your monitoring and, and your scanning and you're doing those kind of things, you can put yourself at a level to where you can accept bringing in some of these technologies to be tested and to go ahead and, and use them, but be aware. You know, be aware of the fact that, hey, this thing records. You know, hey, be aware of this thing can be used for other methodologies besides just regular business. In a home environment, that's, you know, I have to admit that is very interesting. I mean, you know, I have an Alexa in my, in my office. You know, in my in my office at home, and I'm constantly playing with it, and I'm in the middle of getting my AWS cert, so I'm learning how to do things with this, and it drives my wife nuts because I because I have it, I have her I have Alexa talking, and my wife's like, oh okay, your other girlfriend, you know, you need to shut that thing up. <laughs> so it does get to be quite funny at times because it will hear her say something and then want to go ahead and talk, and um, so yeah, I mean you. you there is a, I think there is a balance between risk and reward, and there is, there does come a time where, as a professional, when you're around these types of devices with sensors and stuff, you need to educate yourself. You can't be stupid in today's day and age. You know, there's, it's so much easier now to use technology, and you need to understand, hey, this piece of technology you're using has multiple use cases. And some of those use cases aren't for your team, but for the bad guys. Yes, and you need to understand that. Yeah, and it isn't even, it's absolutely that, but you don't know if it's bad guys or the company or who else is using it. I mean, there's a case in Arkansas where the the police subpoenaed um, the uh, Echo Records from someone who had committed a murder. I mean, I don't know if you heard... uh, you know, Alexa, what chemicals dissolve a body? Oh, I'm not sure if that kind of thing would come up, but, but you know, I mean, that that can be picked up by the police. It can be picked up by any number of folks. Um, and, you know, one of the big cases recently has dealt with uh, toys in this section. Oh, yeah. I mean, the to- toys that are, you know, kids' toys that are that are listening all the time. I mean, uh, you know, talking Barbie that that it is always on to listen to your child. So if your child asks it questions, it will respond. But all the information is going back to Mattel, and then you don't know where it's going because they haven't told anybody. And one of the one of the most interesting cases this year was a Canadian case that dealt with an adult toy. I mean, some sort of vibrating device, which was internet connected, and sending the information of how it was being used and who was using it back to the company. And uh, they got sued over it. You know, and the crazy thing is, is that, you know, the company collects it and you don't know if they're selling it to third parties. That's exactly right. Well, there have been a couple cases about about like smartphone apps that won't turn off, that will always take your uh, your your um, your location data um, for weather purposes, for example, or others. But then they'll send it out, and you don't know where where they're using it. And to bring it back to um, to the smart cities, 
that's really one of my big concerns is that, you know, we have lots of different kinds and levels of privacy, but I'm worried that the simply the, the privacy of where we are, our location privacy, is really completely going away because as the smart cities um, include cameras and can register where your car is and your phone and your Fitbit, you know, people are always going to know where you are. And, and that's not necessarily healthy. Exactly. So, so Ted, as my lawyer, because that, that is what you play in your, in your day life, um, I'm going to ask you a question. We do know there's, there's more and more pressures here, as we've talked about, as you've spoken about at conference, you, you and many others. GDPR, here's this big, huge change, this seismic shift that is impacting our industry this year. Um, globally. Uh, you know, while it in, in theory is just European citizens' data, clearly that's disruptive to every organization everywhere. How can companies respect and protect privacy um, while making efforts to incorporate all these really cool new smart technologies that we've talked about into legacy networks? How, what, what do they need to be doing and how do they need to be protecting themselves in order to stay legally compliant to all these different commercial opportunities we've been talking about? Well, they need to be anticipatory. In other words, they need to anticipate um, what the law is likely to be two, three, four years from now because we are still developing the law of privacy and the law of security. I mean, GDPR is going to require, or it does require, that manufacturers consider privacy building it into their product, privacy by design and security by design, and so that it's not just an afterthought that's thrown in there, um, you know, throwing a little roof on top of it and saying it's now private, that it has to be actually built into the product line. You know, another one of the areas that's interesting when you think about what you're asking is uh, biometrics, because there are a number of of states that have biometrics law laws. The Canadians have an interesting take on regulating biometrics, and uh, and the Europeans think of biometric information as sensitive information that has to be the most protected kind of data. Well. You know, biometrics could be your fingerprint, but it also could be a picture of your face. And um, and, and the state of Illinois has a law right now that, um, that that allows people to sue if they feel that their biometric information is being taken without their permission. So the ultimate key in answer to your question is a company needs to um, see what the law is now and where they think it's going, but they need to be very careful. They need to try and, and build privacy into the design of their product and to build consent into what they're doing because everybody seems to be leaning more and more toward the fact that if you're going to take somebody's information, you have to tell them what you're doing and get their consent. Gary, let, let me ask you something to just we'll follow up on what Ted said, and I, I think we'll give you the last word here, too. You know, I think about your experience over in San Diego, and at least from what I understand around the ambition there, San Diego wants to make it uh, possible for people like vendors with the appropriate controls to have access 
to some of this data that's coming from the smart city capabilities, from these sensors. What do you think, you know, given Ted's comments around future-proofing your, your thinking, your infrastructure, how can we anticipate some of the potential security challenges of tomorrow while still being a pioneer in things like smart cities? How did, how did you think about that as the CISO over in San Diego? Well, I mean, you know, when you go and you look at it, cities are, I admit, cities are very unique networks. I mean, the city of San Diego didn't have one network. We had 25 networks, you know, that were interconnected together with about 40,000 endpoints, you know, spread across the county and about 10,000 employees. And so, you know, from a risk perspective, when you look at these kind of things, you know, the biggest things I go into, I've written articles on, as a CISO, how you look at networks and how you deal with risk. But a lot of it is visibility. You you get into it where you understand how the networks are laid out, how the data flows are happening, who's accessing what, you know, and the permissions that are set up for that, you know, where the data is stored at, how it's backed up. Um, with the chief data officer, you, you know, you're breaking down all of your data types and building out your data pools and, you know, the different data sets that are allowed to be publicly releasable and those that aren't. You know, many of the sensors that we put in with these, with the smart city projects and the data that they collected, if it was any kind of sensitive data around citizens, you know, that kind of data would be encrypted and stored and would not be released. You know, I mean, but there's other types of data that you could release, like, you know, the number of cars, you know, that were parking in certain areas. You wouldn't know the individual car, but you could know traffic patterns, and then you could use those traffic patterns if you were, like, say, creating an app as to which parking spots would probably be open at a certain time of the day or night or during a concert. You know, there was, you know, the uh, ISO 37150 and 37151, you know, discuss, you know, smart cities and just the promise of what they are supposed to be able to bring to their citizens. And, you know, and then 37121 talks about how to be able to tell, you know, if a city is actually being a smart city efficiently, you know, and the ways that the way they, they should be using technologies and services and, and stuff to be able to provide, you know, for their citizens. And a lot of this is being driven because of how they're expecting such a large portion of the world's population will be in cities, you know, by 2050. And of course, as a CISO, being part of a mayor's executive team, when you're looking at that, you're realizing, okay, you're going to have to use technology to be able to provide these types of services, clean water, education, streets, you know. Um, and when you deal with massive networks of this size in, um, in city environments, nothing goes fast, you know. And if you're going to go ahead and, as Ted was saying, if you're trying to future plan the use of technologies, some of these projects are 10 to 15 years in the making because you've got extensive networks and you can't just rip and replace. So sometimes you've got to build, you know, networks in parallel with the one that you plan on pulling out. And it takes years of planning and funding to be able to start building these and putting them in place. And then as you're building them, you've got to do it modular. And I mean, a lot of what I did as I was building out was as I was building our security program and kind of giving a foundation for them to put their smart city projects on, 
I started looking at that I needed to build a security program that was going to be attacked, that needed to be resilient and be able to absorb those attacks. I needed a program that was modular to where I could go ahead and pull out different technologies so that I could use new technologies as they come out to improve my services. And, you know, so it was kind of a, I was trying to plan a large scale kind of a plug and play type of environment, you know, a platform per se where I could, where I could trade out technologies as we grew. And a lot of, you know, cities that are going to be smart, that, are, that want to go smart and become a smart city, they're going to have to approach it with that approach because you just can't get rid of legacy. You're going to keep legacy for a while. And you find that cities are pack rats. They'll keep technology forever until they're really forced to get rid of it. Hence, you know, there's a lot of cities that still have mainframes, you know. And so you're going to have that legacy environment. But because you have that legacy environment should not stop you from providing the services and the things that your citizens need. And so you're going to have to, you know, as you bring in these smart city projects, you've got to find a way to go ahead and have these smart technologies and these newer infrastructures work in parallel with these, um, you know, these legacy infrastructures. And whether it's building things that are modular and you take your legacy infrastructures and you put them in, in VLANs or you put them in, like, you know, protected you know, sites, and then you look through newer types of security technologies to stealth them or ways to be able to protect them until you can eventually phase them out. You know, you've got to just look at it as, okay, this is something, this is a risk. It's known. It's visible. I have to deal with it. All right. But at the same time, I have the smart city plans and things that we're going to do because my services, my citizens are growing. They need new types of you know, uh, services and stuff so we can take care of them. So how do you get the two to mesh to be able to work together? And believe me, it's, it, and it's, and it's a continuous process. Just hiring a CISO doesn't solve the issue. <laughs> you know, that's just getting somebody to spearhead the issue. It's one of those, it's kind of like having a child. You've got to feed that child and bathe the child and take the kid to school and, and take care of it. It's the same thing once you get started with a smart city, uh, you know, program and you start building out those type of networks and working with those types of technologies, it's a continuous process that's ongoing and you don't stop. The care and feeding of a smart city. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. That's a good book. When it sounded the underbelly of all of that, which is the term, I'll circle you right back to where you started, is risk management. And it seems like thematically, no matter what our overarching conversation is, you know, insert hackers and threats, insert DevOps, insert whatever, it, it is that, that risk management perspective that you've eloquently covered. So um, thank you. Thank you both. Um, we've been joined today by Ted Claypool and Gary Hayslip. Um, lots of different things that were covered with us today. Um, I think the quotable lies with you, Gary, today is you can't be stupid in today's day and age. Um, so that will be the one that I'm going to take, print out, hang on the wall. Thank you very much. Um, and then, you know, I think, you know, Ted, some of the guidance that you've given to us, you know, it's, it's look forward, be forward looking and anticipating where the, the law is moving, where things are, are going to be taking us by building consent into what you're doing and making sure if you're collecting something, know that someone might be asking for it. So you've got to plan 
forward-looking with an understanding of the smart movement and where it's taking us. So lots of good guidance from a home standpoint with uh, Alexa and Siri and managing our relationships. Thank you very much, Gary, here. Um, and, and, Ted, that guidance for you with keeping, keeping everything legal. Um, gentlemen, thank you for your perspectives and advice for our listeners. To our audience, please join us next month when we talk about the intersection of AppSec and DevOps.